evidence and answers. Are science and Christian faith enemies? Can someone be a serious scientist and believe in the Bible? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Recently, Pat held his first ever Zoom apologetics conference entitled Truth, Finding Clarity in Confusing Times. Guest speakers included Kirby Anderson, Bazal Rana, Randy Manley, and our own Pat Zucran. Now with part one of Truth in Science is Fazal Rana. Just want to first of all say thank you to Pat and to the, the team of organizers for inviting me to be part of this conference. I'm actually uh, speak to you this afternoon for, for some of you uh, from my daughter's home in Ulta, Iowa, which is a little small uh, community in the western part of the state of Iowa. Uh, my wife and I are in, in Iowa visiting, again, our daughter and spending some time with our grandkids. And uh, I wish that we could actually be in Hawaii uh, with all of you. Hawaii is one of the, the favorite places that my wife and I have to visit. Uh, we love to go to Hawaii. And my favorite thing about Hawaii is the rugged beauty of the Hawaiian islands. Uh, I just love the, again, the, the beauty of Hawaii. And I'm fascinated as a, a life scientist with the, the biodiversity of the Hawaiian islands. On the Hawaiian Islands, I don't need to tell you uh, this, but there are species of life that are found no other place on the planet. Uh, and uh, one of the particular species that is, I think is really fascinating are the Hawaiian honey creepers. Uh, these are about 50 or so different bird species that have a very interesting biodiversity, very interesting biogeographical pattern, but just fascinating, uh, fascinating to see the, the diversity of life on the Hawaiian Islands. And uh, I'm drawn to creatures like the honey creeper because I'm fascinated with birds. I just find birds to be incredibly beautiful animals. And in fact, when I was just finishing up my second postdoc and take, taking on my job working in research and development for a Fortune 500 company, I decided that I needed to actually take up a hobby. Prior to that, I spent five years as a graduate student and two additional years doing postdoctoral work. And it was essentially in the lab 24 seven. Uh, and if I wasn't in the lab doing research, I was reading journal articles or writing journal articles or studying. And, and finally I was working a nine to five job. And I thought now that I have this free time, I, I need to take up a hobby of some sort. And because I like birds so much, I decided that I would take up bird watching as a hobby. And so I went out and I bought all kinds of books on how to, to do bird watching properly and bought a really nice pair of binoculars. And as I started to get into it, I realized that if I was going to do an effective job of actually identifying the birds I was seeing, that I needed to learn a whole lot about bird anatomy. I needed to learn about all the different types of feathers and the patterns and, and the coloration of those feathers and how that compared from bird to bird. And I realized this was going to be like uh, taking part in another science class. So I thought, well, this is too much work for it to be a fun hobby. And so I gave up bird watching. And uh, today I collect comic books. But uh, nevertheless, I've, I've always been fascinated by birds. And one of the birds that I find absolutely remarkable is the uh, Egyptian plover. 
and maybe some of you have heard about the Egyptian plover. This is an artistic depiction of the, the Egyptian plover in the open mouth of a crocodile. And uh, anecdotally, people have observed this bird flying into the open mouth of crocodiles, plucking away at the debris uh, in between the crocodile's teeth. Now, this, uh, you must admit, is a very risky way, a very dangerous way to earn a living, because all it takes is for the crocodile to lose interest in this relationship, and the crocodile is going to bring its jaws crashing down on this little tiny bird. And that's it for the bird, if that would happen, and the crocodile is going to get a nice little tasty snack. Uh, well, for many people, this is uh, the metaphor that they see for the relationship between science and religion. Uh, for many people, they see science like uh, the, the open mouth of a crocodile where religion, and specifically Christianity, is like this little Egyptian plover hopping around inside the mouth of science, hoping to get a few more morsels of food before one day science is going to bring its jaws crashing down on Christianity. And when it does that, that would put an end, uh, in effect, to the Christian faith. That, that many people see a conflict between science and Christianity, and that conflict is not going to end well for the Christian faith, where science is going to prove out to be the superior way of knowing, the superior way to human knowledge. Uh, and this sentiment is captured masterfully by Alistair McGrath in his book, The Twilight of Atheism. And uh, maybe some of you are familiar with this book. If you're not, I would highly commend the book to you. It's a, a book that's a little bit dated now, but it's an inter interesting historical study on essentially atheism as a, a thought system, uh, where here McGrath uh, uh, who was once an atheist, who is now a Christian theologian, uh, describes the, the birth and the flourishing of atheism as a thought system. And he actually argues in the book that atheism is in its decline. And uh, what McGrath uh, does is he looks at the relationship as part of his study between science and the birth of atheism. And this is what he writes. Uh, one of the most remarkable developments of the 19th and early 20th century has been the relentless advance of the perception that there exists a permanent essential conflict between the natural sciences and religion. Science is at war with religion, and that war can only lead to the elimination of religious belief as a relic of a superstitious age that is now long behind us. Science proves things, whereas religion depends on the authoritarian imposition of its dogmas, which fly in the face of evidence. To take the idea of God seriously is to commit intellectual suicide. Scientists are the Promethean liberators of humanity from their bondage to religious tradition and superstition. And maybe some of you have heard people espouse this kind of perspective. And I can tell you this, that when you go to a university setting, when you go to a collegiate setting, this is going to be the mindset that you will encounter on the part of, of many people both in and outside of the sciences, that again, science and Christianity are in conflict, and that conflict is eventually going to be lost by the Christian faith, where science is going to win the day. And this, this attitude is not only confined to the academy, but it permeates our culture at large today. Uh, in the summer of uh, 2015, uh, the Pew Research Foundation published 
a, the results of a survey where they asked the question, are science and religion in conflict? Are science and faith in conflict? And as a result of this survey, 73% of people who never attend church or who would seldom attend church answered yes, that they saw conflict between science and faith. Now, this result isn't surprising to me because in our world today, many people equate science with truth. And so it, whatever science pronounces must be true. And this is because, of course, of the, the nature of the scientific method. Uh, and so for people, if they think that science equates to truth and that science is in conflict with Christianity, then the conclusion must be that Christianity cannot be true. And, so if, and if you believe that, then why would you ever attend church? Now, what was shocking to me in this survey was that 50% of people who regularly attend church on a weekly basis said yes to the question, is there conflict between science and faith? Now, this is surprising to me, but this is also deeply concerning because it means that there are, on a, on a typical uh, congregation on a Sunday morning in churches throughout the United States, there is this sense that their faith is in trouble, that, that people have the sense of, of doubt about their faith, and that doubt originates with uh, science itself. And that means that these people are either going to, again, struggle with their faith, or if their faith is very important to them, they're going to develop an attitude of hostility uh, to science, or at, at best, dismissing anything that science says. They're going to do everything they can to ignore uh, science. Uh, now, this is really concerning because in our church, there are young people who are interested in science. A Barna survey indicated that over half the students in a typical uh, youth group are interested in some kind of career in science, technology, engineering, medicine, or mathematics. Uh, which means that these students are going to go off to college and they're going to be taking courses in the sciences. And if they learn in their church experience that science is a threat to their faith, and again, they get to college and they begin to encounter the evidence and they have no framework by which to process what they are experiencing, it's going to lead them to doubts about their faith. So this is, uh, again, a deeply concerning issue, I think, for all of us as Christians. But there is incredibly good news, and that's what we're going to focus our attention on this evening, is the good news uh, about uh, the relationship between science and the Christian faith. And I'm going to begin to share that good news with you by talking about the results of another survey that was published in the fall of 2015. This survey was conducted by Lifeway Research uh, Institute. And they posed the statement and asked if you would agree or disagree with that. And the statement was this, the organization of the universe points to a creator. That's the statement. And 72% of all Americans agreed with that statement. And it's remarkably 46% of people that are non-religious agreed with that statement. Now, if somebody is non-religious, it doesn't mean that they're an atheist. It just means that they don't necessarily identify with any kind of religious perspective. They're not necessarily pro-faith or anti-faith. They, they just simply are none of the above. And this is actually really encouraging because it says that most people, when they begin to contemplate, again, the organization and the design of the universe and phenomena within the universe, 
they actually intuitively recognize evidence for the creator's handiwork. And so in, if this is the case, then it means that if science is the study of the universe and the phenomena within the universe, that science should actually serve as a very powerful tool to point to a creator's existence. Uh, and so if we know how to marshal evidence that reflects the organization and the design of the universe uh, in such a way that we can not only demonstrate the reality of a creator's existence, which could help a non-believer come closer to the cross, but this would also strengthen and encourage the faith of believers as well. Ed Stetzer, who was at that time the executive director of LifeWay Research, he now is the executive director of the Billy Graham Center, wrote this in response to that survey. It appears people, even non-religious people, are indeed open to apologetic arguments if Christians actually will make them. And so that's what we're going to focus on tonight is how can we recognize the evidence in the organization in the design of the universe uh, for a creator's existence, and in doing so, uh, how can we use that uh, to, to draw people to faith in Christ? How can we do that to encourage the faith of uh, people in the church who struggle with doubts, and, and those doubts originate from science itself? Now, the idea of using uh, scientific evidence to build a case for the creator is an idea that has biblical warrant. When we look at scripture, we recognize that scripture teaches us that God is this transcendent creator who is independent of the universe itself, who spoke the universe into existence. But this creator who is transcendent, who exists outside the universe, has taken steps to make himself known to us as human beings who bear his image. And part of that is that he has revealed himself to us through what we now have today as the Old and the New Testament. But the Old and the New Testament are, is a, essentially a, a series of documents that describe God revealing himself to specific people at specific times in highly specific ways. Uh, we also recognize that in the person of Christ, God has presented the ultimate revelation of himself to us. But scripture teaches us that God has also made himself known to us through the record of nature, through that which he has made, that through his creation, we can we see evidence for not only the creator's fingerprints, but evidence for the creator's character, for the creator's nature. Uh, and, and one of the passages of scripture that teaches this uh, to us is, is Psalm 19. And I would recommend that you spend a little bit of time reading through this psalm on your own. Uh, but this is just one of the many passages that speak about God revealing himself to us through the record of nature. So if God is revealing himself to us through the, the record of nature, and science is the study of nature, then we would expect science to actually, again, reveal to us evidence for the creator. And instead of there being conflict between science and faith, what we actually would expect to see is harmony. And, and the, the challenge is making sure that we recognize how to think about scientific discoveries in light of our faith. And when we learn how to do that, suddenly we see that science is no longer a threat to our faith, but science reveals the truth about our faith. A science reveals to us truth. And if we think about truth as being the person of Christ, being uh, the, the, the ultimate reality 
in, in the context of its relationship to God, then science essentially reflects truth. That is, science provides us with evidence for a God. Now, what I'm going to do this evening is talk about uh, three different ways in which science can be used to build a case for the creator, where we're going to look about how science can be used to establish the fact that there must be a creator that brought the universe into existence, a creator who's responsible for the design of the universe and the design of life. We're going to talk about how scientific discoveries can be used to demonstrate the credibility of the different creation passages in scripture. And then also, we're going to talk lastly about how science can even be used to identify who that creator very well may be. Okay, so let's go ahead and uh, take a look at how can science demonstrate to us God's existence. And the way I'm going to approach this is by using what uh, philosophers would call the classical arguments for God's existence. And specifically this evening, I'm going to focus on the cosmological and the teleological arguments for God's existence. The cosmological argument for God's existence is the argument from beginnings. That, and the idea here is that if something begins to exist, it must have a cause. And what we're going to try to argue is that the universe began to exist, therefore it must have a cause that exists independent and outside of the universe itself. So this is the, the cosmological argument for God's existence. The teleological argument for God's existence is the design argument. That is, if something appears to be designed, then there must be a designer that is responsible for that design. So these are, in effect, the two uh, arguments that we're going to be focusing on tonight. And these are really philosophical arguments, by the way, for God's existence. But what we're going to do this evening is show how scientific discoveries help to bolster and inform uh, these particular arguments. So let's take a look at the cosmological argument first. And this argument gains incredible potency thanks to the discovery that has been made uh, by astronomers and astrophysicists that, in effect, the universe that we live in actually has had a beginning. That the matter, energy, space, and time, those very quantities that define the universe itself, all had a beginning at the same instant of time. This is referred to as the singularity. The universe began as a singularity. That is, at one point in time, there was no universe, and then suddenly the universe appears to have come into existence. Uh, this is the, one of the most incredible uh, human accomplishments of all times, at least from a scientific perspective, is to recognize that the universe is not infinite, it's not eternal, but rather it has, a, has had a finite existence. It's finite in extent, uh, that the universe indeed had a beginning. And again, if the universe had a beginning, there must be something that caused the universe. And that cause must be a transcendent causal agent that brought the universe into existence. And this is exactly how we conceive of God from a Christian worldview perspective, that God is a transcendent creator that brought the universe into existence. And the implications of this are so profound that it's not lost on the scientists who have been involved in making these studies. One of them is George Smoot, uh, who it won the Nobel Prize uh, as leading the research team that provided some of the most compelling evidence for the beginning of the universe. George Smoot, for all I know, is not necessarily sympathetic to the Christian worldview, 
But this is what he wrote in response to this discovery that he and his team made. What we have found is evidence for the birth of the universe. It's like looking at God. And so, uh, again, this is indicating the, the power of this type of discovery. And, of course, this is in line with what Scripture teaches us about God and his relationship to the universe as creator, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in that, in that, that phrase, heavens and earth, in the original Hebrew, Shamayan Eretz, refers to the totality of creation. In the beginning, God brought into existence the, the totality of all that exists. And when we see passages like Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand uh, that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what was seen was not made out of what was visible. Uh, this, again, is, is indicating that there was a time where the universe did not exist, and that that universe came into existence uh, at the Creator's command. And, and what would it look like if indeed this was the case? Wouldn't it look like suddenly the universe began to exist? And this is precisely what astronomers have discovered. Now, there's something else that's also tied up into this notion of a beginning to the universe, and that is this really provocative concept that time itself had a beginning. And if you think about this for a little bit, this is really mind-bending because it's hard to even envision what it would look like for there to be uh, a point in existence where there is no such thing as time. For us as human beings, it's very difficult to even conceive uh, of what that would be like because we're so used to being to the concept of time. We're embedded in time itself. Uh, John Barrow, a, a theoretical physicist, said this, there was no before the beginning of our universe because once upon a time, there was no time. And so part of this notion that the universe had a beginning is that time had a beginning. And this is a, a bizarre concept that really is the product of, of modern day physics. It's a, it's a really relatively recent notion uh, among scientists and philosophers. What's interesting to me is that this, this idea that time had a beginning is actually found within Scripture itself. For example, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. And so here we see, again, with the cosmological argument for God's existence, some very powerful scientific discoveries uh, from cosmology that demonstrate the necessity of a creator and that, and, and that these discoveries line up with biblical passages that speak about God and his relationship to creation. Now let's take a look at the teleological argument for God's existence. This is the design argument. And we also see that not only does cosmology and astronomy and astrophysics give us evidence uh, to, to bolster and strengthen the cosmological argument for God's existence, we also see that <clears throat> insights from these areas of research uh, give us evidence for the design of the universe itself. The universe appears to have been designed for a purpose. Uh, and if we see design and design for a purpose, that suggests 
that there is a designer. And if there is a designer, design, intent, and purpose are things that flow out of a personality. And so that means that this transcendent cause that brought the universe into existence is not some kind of impersonal agency that brought the universe into existence, but rather, or sorry, not some kind of impersonal force, but actually a personality. It's a bona fide agent, if you will. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You will also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. <laughs> <laughs>